Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. And we're taking a look at some of the latest scientific discoveries from around the world, starting in the Amazon, Cat. Now, you may not be familiar with the name Euclid, but you're probably familiar with his ideas. More than 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece, Euclid laid down the foundations of basic geometry, such as the idea that two parallel lines never cross and that the angles inside a triangle always add up to a constant number. Know what that is, Chris? Let me think. 180 degrees. Yeah, well done. Have a biscuit. Uh, many of us will have learned these basic principles of geometry at school, although some philosophers have suggested that we actually get most of our grasp of geometry from looking at the world around us and moving around in it. Say, for example, by figuring out that the shortest way home is a straight line rather than a curved or a wiggly one. Now, to find out whether this idea is correct, some French psychologists took a field trip to the Amazon, which is nice for them, to find out how well the Mundaruku, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, they're a tribe of indigenous people who've got no formal schooling in maths, how they grasped the principles of Euclidean geometry. And how did they do that? Well, the researchers developed a series of tasks for adults and children from the tribe, and they asked them about lines drawn on a flat surface or on a sphere. So, for example, they asked them whether lines could be drawn between two points on the surface or whether parallel or non-parallel lines would ever cross. And to set the scene, um, they explained that the points were villages and the lines were paths between the two. So that's a concept that these tribesmen are very familiar with because they're experts at navigating around their landscape. Now, they also asked them to estimate estimate the third angle in an incomplete triangle to see whether the Munduruku people understood that the angles inside a triangle always add up to a constant number. And that's something that half of students doing GCSE can't do. How did they get on? Well, actually, they did really, really well, as, as well, in fact, as either French or American adults uh, or children given the same tasks who would have had a formal education in geometry. Now, this suggests that just figuring out your environment and learning how to get from place to place within it gives you a pretty good grounding in Euclidean principles without having to learn about it in the classroom. But intriguingly, when researchers tested very young children, say age five to six, they found that their grasp of geometry was a bit shakier. They had some of it right, but they hadn't quite figured it all out. So overall, it looks like we do have an intuitive grasp of some of the principles of basic geometry. And this is shaped by our learning and our interactions with the world around us as we grow up. And the bottom line being, we should therefore, what, stop doing geometry at school? Bad luck? No. <laughs> um, obviously, maths lessons do teach you a lot more than just these basics about lines and points and triangles. But it does tell us that actually we develop a lot of our sense of geometry through our experience of the world around us and that that fits in with what Euclid worked out. So maybe there's a better way of teaching geometry and maths. Who knows? But what's still not explained is that the researchers found that the Mundaruka, as well as the, the French and American people they tested, they can understand concepts that are outside of the sphere of what you've actually physically experienced, of what you've seen or what you've done. So, in fact, there's some way that we're building our own theory of geometry that is, is outside our own experience, rather than just learning about it through a textbook. So that's something that needs exploring. 
Well, it's a bit like the guy who said he was watching his dog run along the shoreline while he threw sticks into the sea, and he did a little experiment and showed that the dog always took the shortest route to get to the stick, um, and that was either running along the shore the right distance until it was directly adjacent to the stick in the water because it knew that uh, to run along the shore was easier, but then swimming through the water, if it got directly adjacent to the stick, was going to minimise the workload on the dog. So obviously even a, a, a more primitive animal has the right sort of neurological model for doing these sorts of calculations. Oh, yeah, do- dogs do trigonometry. I've, I've seen dogs chasing squirrels and they, they know where the squirrel's going to be when they hit it. Up a tree, usually. <laughs> yeah. um, I wonder, just on the subject of these interesting tribes that are in the Amazon, there's actually a paper that came out this week. It's in um, the journal Language and Cognition from a University of Portsmouth researcher called Chris Sinha. I've only seen a, a brief overview of this, but what they were doing was studying this group called the Amondawa people. This is a tribe that actually have no concept, it would appear, in their language for time. There are no words for, for instance, day, week, month, year, or even the word time. And they just talk in terms of the division between day and night and the fact that there's a rainy season and a dry season. I would have thought that time would have been one of the fundamental things we would also, like your geometry story, have some kind of uh, sort of innate understanding of. Mm, Yeah, at least even like lunchtime or tea time. Maybe they just go stuff that's happening now, stuff that's happened before and stuff that's happening in the future. It'd be really interesting to see that paper. Intriguingly, they also, uh, when they grow older, they change their names. So when a newborn comes along, the child who's the currently uh, incumbent newborn becomes the more senior child and changes its name and gives its name to the newborn. It's quite intriguing, isn't it? So you, you always have a new name. I wonder how they keep track of that. that Confusing. certainly is. <laughs> now, they say the first impressions last, and uh, it turns out that what uh, people say about you behind your back can also affect to a certain extent, how people see you or perceive you. Now, they say that the process of gossiping is a little bit like the sort of human equivalent of picking fleas off of the back of a colleague in order to groom them. So it's sort of what humans do. We exchange juicy tidbits between us about other people or what's going on rather than picking fleas off each other. Um, But does this actually affect the way in which our brains then process information about the people we've been discussing? Well, that was what Lisa Barrett and her colleagues at Northeastern University in the US were wondering. They've published this work in the journal Science this week. It's really intriguing. They get a group of volunteers. They show them pictures of what are called neutral faces. So these are faces that are not pulling any kind of particular expression. And so they show them these faces and they pair with each face four times over a statement. And this statement is some social information. It will be either something negative, such as this person got stroppy and threw a chair across a room, or it's something neutral, like this person got up and closed the curtains, or it's something really positive, like this person helped an old person across the road a few times. And after they'd done that, they then did a memory test on these people just to check whether they actually learned the faces equivalently. And then they did what's called a binocular rivalry task. And this is an old trick. What you do is you put two images in front of the face, one in front of each eye. And because the brain is seeing two different images, you have to choose which one you're going to pay attention to. And they gave the subjects a button, A and B, and asked them to choose which of the two images they were seeing consciously at which time. And they presented each of the faces that they'd shown with these social information statements, the good or bad ones, alongside a neutral picture of, say, a house. And they asked the subjects to tell them how long they were looking at each thing. And what was amazing is that they saw and perceived for much longer those faces that had been associated with negative, gossipy comments previously. 
if you'd heard something positive said about the face or something neutral said about the face didn't make an iota of difference. It was just the negative comments that made that particular face get perceived in the brain for much longer and the brain paid much more attention to it. And they actually say in their paper, and I'll quote it because I can't put it better than they did, they say, this preferential selection for seeing bad people might protect us from liars and cheats by allowing us to view them for longer and explicitly gather more information about their behaviour. In other words, you learn something about them by watching them rather than having to get first-hand experience of their being nasty to you. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Also, this week, UK scientists have made a big step forward in the field of organ transplantation, and King's College London researcher Robert Leckler and his colleagues have found a way to purify a rare population of immune cells called Tregs, that's short for regulatory T cells, that help to switch off immune responses against donor organs, and that could help to reduce the risk of rejection. Organ transplantation, I would say, uh, was one of the major successes of the second half of the last century in uh, the field of medicine because uh, it is life-saving very often and life-transforming almost always. And the success rates have improved steadily to the point that now when you have a kidney or a heart or a liver, uh, these organs succeed, are successfully accepted in around 90% of cases and give a real lift to the quality of life of the, of the patient. So it's a terrific success story. However, there are three problems. The first is the side effects and complications of the drugs that we have to give to make it work. And these are drugs called immunosuppressive drugs that cause blanket depression of the immune system so that the immune system doesn't attack the transplant. But it doesn't only depress the immune response to the transplant, it makes your immune system uh, less competent at protecting you against infections and it increases your risk of cancer. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that transplants tend to fail over time. So the average kidney transplant uh, from a dead donor would normally last around 10 or maybe 12 years, and then gradually they fail, and then, of course, the patient, if it's a kidney patient, goes back onto a kidney machine and waits for another transplant. And is the reason for that failure, Robert, that there is, despite the immunosuppression, a gradual and inexorable damage being unleashed upon the donor tissue by the patient's immune system? Uh, That's a very good question, and the answer is partly yes. Actually, the causes of late transplant failure are quite complicated and involve several different body systems, but the immune system is definitely one of the drivers, you're right. So, and then the third limitation is, is the supply and demand problem, that the whole field of transplantation has been a victim of its own success, and so uh, we just can't keep up with the number of organs that are needed. And this is made worse by the organ failure business because, of course, kidney patients go back on dialysis, and so dialysis programs are filling up with patients who are waiting for their second or third transplant. So what is your solution? So we and many others around the world um, have been uh, working on the possibility of making the patient's immune system selectively blind, is one way to put it, uh, to the transplant. So the other language used is to make the patient tolerant, their immune system tolerant to the transplant, while leaving the immune system intact to protect the patient against infections and cancer. That would solve all three of the problems I've described because you wouldn't need long-term drugs, number one. Number two, um, this would probably limit the chronic transplant failure I mentioned. And thirdly, because transplant would last longer, then it would help to address the supply and demand issue. And how can you do that? 
the, the, there are several approaches that are being explored. Uh, the one that we have taken is to exploit a population of white blood cells that we all have um, that we have in order to protect us from what are called autoimmune diseases when the immune system attacks self. Uh, and many chronic diseases are caused by autoimmune reactions, diabetes, for example, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis. These are autoimmune diseases. Most of, most of us don't get those diseases, and the reason is because we have this specialized population of white blood cells. They're called regulatory cells, or they're rather like policemen, that keep the immune system from attacking self. So what we, the question we posed is, could we take those cells and, if you like, divert their attention to regulate their response against the foreign bits of a transplanted organ. But these cells are present in the body at very low frequency. So how can you get enough of them and also get just the ones from a mixed population that you need just to protect the target organ and not bring down the immune system comprehensively? That's uh, a very good question. So the answer is that the approach we've taken is we've uh, isolated this uh, specialized population of white cells from normal individuals uh, and expanded them in the test tube and expanded them by stimulating them with foreign antigens, is the word, the foreign proteins of a transplanted organ. The ones that respond to the transplant foreign proteins, those ones selectively grow, and then you can make these cells expand uh, to very large numbers in the test tube in order then to infuse them back in adequate numbers in vivo. And because you have only expanded the ones that react to the transplant foreign proteins, then they're only going to depress the immune response to the transplant rather than to all the other environmental antigens. And when you put them back into the patient, in your case you were using animals as a model obviously Correct. what about the longevity of those cells do they last long enough to give a sustained immunosuppression selectively against the target organ or are you going to have to keep repeating this process throughout the lifetime of that patient's graft in order to keep their immune system in check so the experiments that we've just described were getting close to working in a patient because they were working with human cells and it was a model of human transplant rejection because these were little pieces of human skin that we were protecting with these human cells. So this was the human immune system working in an in vivo context, albeit it was uh, in a mouse. Earlier experiments we've done with mouse cells in a mouse, we've examined the question that you just uh, asked, and we've looked at their longevity, and we can find these cells 80 days after we put them in, so you can find these cells for quite a long time. But actually what I would emphasize is that this kind of approach is really designed to tip the balance of the immune system towards tolerance, towards regulation, rather than rejection. And if you can tip that balance and reprogram the immune system, then actually it will tend to sustain that tolerant state itself even if the cells that you initially put in uh, subsequently die. And as we'll be hearing later, regulatory T-cells may actually be a key to helping beat allergies too and could also work to uh, help treat autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Let's hope so. That was King's College London scientist Robert Leckler and he published that work this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Thank you, Kat. Now we've got the sweet solution to the problem of water purification. 
Actually, giving people clean water to drink is one of the big challenges in the 21st century. Even today, we think that roughly about half the world's population don't have access to fresh water. And also the water they do have access to is pretty often contaminated with organic chemicals, including what are called persistent organic pollutants, POPs, which are actually very stable compounds but very hard to remove. And uh, they're also therefore uh, risky if they're in the environment because they can cause other onward disease consequences like there are things like trichloroethylene, which has been linked to cancer. But there's a really nice paper coming out this week. It's in the journal PNAS by Scott Lewis and his colleagues from the University of Kentucky. And what they've done is to produce a special filter membrane that actually is powered by sugar glucose and it uses the energy in the sugar to break down these chemicals in water that pass through the filter. So here's how it works. They've got two layers of the membrane which is made of a special organic substance and they have embedded into the upper layer of the membrane an enzyme called glucose oxidase. This glucose oxidase burns glucose and it produces when it breaks down glucose hydrogen peroxide effectively bleach, the stuff that you use to, to sterilise contact lenses, make teeth white and so on. Now that hydrogen peroxide passes through tiny pores in this upper membrane down into the second membrane where they have embedded tiny particles of iron, the metal. And this catalyses the breakdown or decomposition of that hydrogen peroxide and it produces what are called hydroxyl radicals which are highly reactive chemicals which will attack any industrial pollutants which are present in the water and break them down. And when they did some studies just in the dish, they found that it could deal with 100% initially of the chemicals which are passing through the filter. And after about half an hour, it was still dealing with at least 70% of them. And when they took a sample of groundwater that was contaminated with things like trichloroethylene and trichlorophenol, uh, what they found is that it was still dealing with over 70% of the amounts of those chemicals that were in the groundwater. So what this shows is that you can make something very, very cheap, very, very simple, and run on a very, very simple energy source, glucose, which you can get pretty much anywhere, and you can use it to decontaminate water very effectively. So isn't that an amazing breakthrough, Kat? A sweet story indeed. Now, if you'd like to read up on anything that we've covered this week in the news, the references and the transcripts for all of our news stories are online at thenakedscientist.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.